Hello and welcome back to the Red Special Guitar Podcast with me, your host, John Underhill. Now, in today's episode, we have a wonderful guest all the way from the United States of America, who is someone I've been looking forward to getting in touch with and getting hold of for some time. And it's a really wonderful chat with some great information, unlocking some new information and um, explaining some of the myths around the Red Special and especially the John Page Fender Red Special replica. Also ties in really nicely with our previous episode with Julian Hemingway. Now, before we get into this episode, I just wanted to have a quick shout out about some new podcast merch that we've got coming out soon. We've got brand new Red Special Guitar Podcast, Podcast Coins, which will be available in the next few weeks. We've also got a limited number run of It's Slate, as coined by Brian Harold May himself, Podcast Slates, where proceeds of each will be going to or a donation for every purchase made will be going to Brian May's Save Me Trust. So it's well worth getting hold of. The slates are a limited number and the coins I also have a limited number of as well. And they're absolutely fantastic. I love them. Um, it's a great time getting hold of those. And then the other thing I want to mention before we dive into the episode is the upcoming Red Special Guitar Meetups. Now, in the month of April, we will see the next, I think the third US Phoenix Red Special Guitar Meetup with my friend Luke Holwerder, and a bit later on in the year, we've also got the East Coast US Red Special Guitar Meetup in the September, end of September, October time with Woody Thomas, and then the UK Red Special Guitar Meetup, the one to go to, the hottest ticket there is, um, been sold out pretty quickly, which was a bit of a shock to us all, but amazing news that that has been sold out. We are looking at seeing if there is anything we can do to increase numbers at the venue and to see what we can do, but we'll more on that later. But thank you so much for everyone who is coming to that and has bought a ticket. It means the world that you want to come. And I'm really sorry that we can't get more of you in, but we need to make sure that the event is safe and secure. And to do that properly, we have to have the right things in place. And we're currently working to see if there's some other things that we can do. So please bear with us and make sure you fill in the waiting list form, uh, ticket dropouts, just so we know. And if also you want to get hold of a ticket, if we are able to increase the venue size, or increase capacity, then please do make sure your name is on that because that's the list we'll be going from. So if you're not down on that, please make sure that you are. Yeah, enough rambling from me. Um, make sure you've got a drink, make sure you're relaxed, make sure you're sitting comfortably as I'd like to introduce Everett Wood to the Red Special Guitar Podcast. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the Red Special Guitar Podcast, today I am honoured to welcome a gentleman from my original days on the Red Special Forum, which was actually the Brian Maywald Forum, a man who's gone on to do many great things and has many stories to tell, which I'm hopefully he'll share with us today. He's coming to us all the way from Tennessee in the US. Mr. Everett Wood. Everett, how are you? I'm pretty good, John. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'd like to say hello to everybody that's uh, going to be watching after it's uh, all published and so on. And uh, I hope everybody gets a chance to learn a couple things. And I'm probably going to learn a couple things. So let's uh, let's have a good time today. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I know it's um, when I reached out, it was a little while ago, but we finally arranged a time when convenient to chat. So thank you for your time, because I know you're, you're busy doing other things these days. Yeah, uh, I'm getting towards the end of my career with General Motors, and uh, 
I'm in a plant that is called a critical status. And I've been working for months and months, you know, with no time off. And uh, I know we were supposed to do this a couple times before and it all got pushed back and pushed back. So we'll blame it all on General Motors. Yeah, <laughs> good. <laughs> but you're, you're well, you look pretty well. And I'm doing well. well for a man my age. <laughs> no, you, you look fine. But so Everett, for those that don't know you, um, you've you've had a, a long, not a long, but a history of, of making guitars and working in the Brian May guitar world in, in America. Um, but first and foremost, what what started it all off? Can you remember the first Queen song you ever heard? Oh, that would have to go back to, I was probably around 13 or 14, and uh, Queen was doing a tour in the United States, and uh, a friend of mine who had a brother that was a little bit older than us, you know, he was maybe 16 or 17, and uh, he had turned us on to some of the uh music off of sheer heart attack and then um we were in art class in high school and uh, we had a teacher she was kind of a oh what do you call like a hippie you know she was an older woman and she was always telling us bring in you know mute whatever kind of music you like she wanted everybody to hear everything and somebody had a copy of sheer heart attack and uh, the the beginning of that album, I, I don't know the the sound, the way it was produced, and everything. It just really captured me, and I I became a fan right then. So you know, fifty years ago, <laughs> it was quite a long time ago. And so, <clears throat> at that point, were you playing guitar, or were you just a fan of music, or was it a real awakening for you to? opening your eyes to, and your ears to music? Well, I, uh, I've never, ever been a good guitar player. I'll, I'll tell anybody that. Anybody that's met me at a guitar show and uh, they noticed that I had uh, my guitar player, Deanna Passarella, with us. You know, she was a lot prettier than me and uh, she played guitar a thousand times better. So she was the, the natural for being there, but I, I just never had the time um, to become a good guitar player, which is kind of weird because uh, two of my brothers uh, were musicians for a long time. And, but I kind of chose a different path and uh, had to kind of grow up a little bit faster than everybody else. So, so did, did you, so, Looking at your when you first heard She Artistack, did you then like ask who's this band and try and find more albums and songs, or was it just that one that one album that caught your caught your ear? Well, the the Sheer Heart Attack album was released, and then, uh, like I said, I had a friend who had a little older brother, and uh, so he had the first two Queen albums, and. Uh, I remember, you know, we'd, we'd go over and sneak into his room and, and uh, you know, get the, the records go down in the basement and play them and so on. And then, you know, you had to 
save your allowance and so on and then you could buy you know, the next album that was coming out or something that you really liked you know but uh yeah it was it's been a lifelong love affair definitely worthwhile as well and so what point did you pick the guitar up was that after that or were you already playing i know you said you don't play very well but Clearly, you must have picked a guitar at some point and, and got interested in it. Was that later on or was that the same time? Um, when I was first part of high school, uh, my younger brother, he, uh, fun, funny thing, uh, he kind of looked like Paul Stanley from Kiss. He had the, the long, dark hair that was curly and, you know, the girls went crazy young for him. And um, he was a guitar player and a singer in a local band. And uh, so I got more into the equipment side of it, you know, and uh, it, it, it fascinated me. I have uh, an electrical background. That's what I do for a living and uh, sound reinforcement. You know, I, I was going to be a uh, sound engineer when I was younger, but you know, life takes over and, uh, that didn't work out, but I've always had a fascination with, with all of it. And then later on in life, I, I started buying and selling guitars. And, uh, that's, that's when I got the most exposure to the whole business side of it. <clears throat> Can you remember when you first learned that Brian, obviously, Queens have been an influence on you and you're a bit later on in life, but can you remember when you learned that Brian had made the guitar himself with his dad? Well, here, here we go back to, this is long before the internet. And uh, you would have to, there, here's a perfect example. You would have to save your money and go to a store and buy a magazine. And back then it was uh, Cream Magazine or Hit Parader or Melody Maker, Rolling Stone. And uh, if you were lucky, they would have a short interview and maybe some photos. And I remember when Queen started to break big, you know, um, there was, I think it was Guitar Magazine um, in 1973 they did uh, an in one-on-one -on -one interview, uh, Jeffrey something, I can't remember the guy's last name, but he did a really nice interview where Brian uh, talked about how the guitar was built. Him and his father had, you know, built it out of uh, just household things and no power tools, you know, and how long it took and, and uh, the different things that they tried. I mean, even if you look in his book, uh, you can see, you know, some of the uh, uh, the photos of the guitar when it's in pieces, you know, you can see they had made changes. There was the, the original tremolo with the, the little roller bearings and so on. And uh, then they came up with the, the knife edge and so on. But uh, that... That magazine uh, and the way that they 
way that they described everything. And, th and there was actually photos of the tremolo and, you know, and, and so on, uh, where they were doing the, the test with the neck. And I mean, that was groundbreaking. That, that tremolo system was 20, 25 years ahead of its time. And uh, nobody knew it. I mean, if it's brand new and nobody's thought of it before, nobody knows. And uh, to have a, a true floating tremolo back in those days, and that came out of somebody's little workshop in a bedroom is just unbelievable. And it to read all that back then and to think about it now, you know, because it's history now, um, it's, it's amazing. It was amazing back then. And, you know, nobody that was out on the road making money as a guitar player was playing a, a guitar they made at home. And uh, everybody had the Telecasters and the Fender uh, Strats and the Les Pauls and SGs and so on. And uh, here you had a couple of guys that really didn't know that much about building a guitar, but they knew what they wanted to have it when it was finished. And all that that, that came together way back then, and that little bit of information that trickled out, you know, it to me, it was just amazing. So, so I hope I didn't ramble too far. <laughs> no, not at all. It's really good. It's it's really interesting to know, like, because I've interviewed lots of people now, and to know what's um <clears throat> where they've not everyone finds the information out and then does something with it immediately. Some people, I think, and you're probably one of them ever. It would be that piece of information you learned back in the seventies was then a seed planted in your mind, and then it took a few years later from. What, what I'd imagine you're going to say for it, you to water it, for it to grow into making you do something with it. Well, <clears throat> that information kind of trickled out in 73, like I think it was August of 73, it was printed. And uh, Mark Reynolds actually posted it online years ago. And I'm sure, you know, everybody in the world found that little bit of information and that history and just thought it was crazy. But, uh, and then, you know, so you're talking about 73 and 10 years go by and the Guild guitar comes out and uh, the, the early ones, um, they were supposedly to be, you know, a reproduction of the original and everybody that was a fan, uh, I mean, I was in the Navy back then and there was no way I was coming up for, you know, the money to pay for one of those. So, uh, you know, the people that got them, I don't think they truly understood them. And because that guitar uh, is not built uh, like a regular guitar, you know. You can see that with the birch, and I'll show you some examples of what John Page and, and John Schur were doing back in 83, 84, when they were uh, supposedly, you know, 
building a reproduction for for Brian. And uh, because they were schooled in the art of building guitars, they were going to put those standards into Brian's guitar and it just doesn't fit. And we had the same thing when I met Stephen Fazio and uh, we did the, the whole CNC thing and put everything together and he's a trained luthier and we got the first one done and we went up and looked at it and I was like, well, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is definitely not. He's like, that's the way you're supposed to build a guitar. Well, this isn't a regular guitar. This is something that was put together in a bedroom and put together with household items. And you're not going to see those standards. You're going to see stuff that came out of a Hoffner. You're going to see stuff that came out of a Fender. You know, and uh, it seemed like every time Brian would have something done, there was uh, there was some Gibson in there, you know, especially with the John Birch guitar. I really saw a lot of that. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of people there, Britt. <clears throat> we'll go through all of them, if that's all right. Um, so you mentioned John Page, and I know um, that guitar came up in our podcast with Julian Hemingway recently, where... Julian had actually sent some pickups over, he believed, which ended up in possibly in the John Birch guitar. Um, that... Well, officially they're not in that guitar at this moment. Right. <laughs> I have the I have the guitar apart because I wanted to, I had to do a little maintenance to it. And uh, I wanted to show um, as an example some of the things that Fender was doing, you know, because Fender does something the Fender way. Yeah. And uh, that was one of the reasons why um, Fender turned down the idea. I mean, John Page, he was working with everybody. And, uh, you know, they had a good association with Queen through John Deacon and so on. And um, when... Brian had met him when they were in the studio. Um, they started talking about, you know, how the guitar was built and everything. And he's like, I need another one. And John Page was like, well, we're going to do it exactly like you and your father did. And they were headed down that road. And then there was, you know, some things that they were doing that, they were fender things because that's the way they were taught. You know, the neck joint, the original neck joint was not going to be used in the reproduction that fender was making. It was close, but not exactly the same thing. So how did you meet John Page? That's always been something that I found interesting. I follow, I mean, I remember talking to you probably 15 years ago about the guitar and um, seeing you on BrianMayWorld.com on the old red and black old forum and I know there's a YouTube video out there which we'll link somewhere where you're describing the guitar at NAMM um, to a reporter but how, how did you originally meet John Page and then what did that lead on to because from memory... Well the story of John Page <clears throat> it all goes back to eBay everybody loves eBay you can find anything on eBay and this magazine 
I bought for $1. I think it was $1 and free shipping. <laughs> so this magazine shows up in my mail, you know, a week or so later. And I'm home and alone, you know, nobody's there to bother me. I'm going to sit down and read this article. And uh, when is it? This is February 1983. And, and I'll, I'll send you a couple pictures you can show people. And uh, it's mysteriously about uh, an interview with Max K, where they're talking about the guitar and so on. And, you know, I bet you he's told that, Brian had probably told that story a hundred thousand times by the, you know, everybody's got the, the same questions when you do the interviews and so on. But he was talking about this whole chain of events and, you know, I no idea how many people read this, but when I read this, it said that uh, he had been contacted by a Japanese company, Greco, about doing a Brian May guitar, and they sent him one, which I'm sure everybody's seen on the videos and so on. And uh, at that point, uh, Brian was like, let's if we're going to do this, let's do something right. And they were like, we're already doing this, you know, why should we even bother? And so nothing ever happened with that. Well, John Page <clears throat> had gone to the studios in California and uh, he was doing some work with the cars and they stopped in to see uh, John Deacon and because he was using some Fender stuff back then. And uh, the whole story was, you know, Brian showed him the guitar and they were talking about how it was built and they, you know, he built it at home and so on. And then he said, I, I had a John Perch copy and I smashed it one night, which was very unusual for me. It was a combination of circumstances. I was pretty much un under stress. I broke a lot of strings that night and my own guitar had gotten knocked over and I lost the machine head. And if you look in the pictures, that's when it's got the, the chrome G string to it. Yeah. <clears throat> I said, the, uh, let's see, luckily he didn't throw the original off. Da, da, da. I had had discussions to have one built that sounded like mine with John Pen uh, John Page from the Fender Research and Development Department. I broke the other one and I called John and I said, well, how about it? And John Page said, well, if we make you a nice copy and so on, it'll be just exactly like the original, very, very close to the original. The same wood, the same materials, same measurements, as, and whereas John Birch was an attempt to make a better guitar than what the original was. And um, that's where you see a lot of the Gibson stuff. Yeah. So, but the, he said the Fender replacement is going to be, you know, absolutely identical to the original with all its faults. 
And if you're a guitar builder, you look at that, you're going to go, oh, yeah, this is wrong. That's wrong. It can't be that wrong because you've got a guitar that's been touring the world for over 60 years with one of the most famous guitar players in the whole world. Everybody knows Brian. So I had read this whole chain of events and I was uh, and actually been talking with Chris Mahoney at the time. And we were talking about the John Birch guitar. And um, I had said to myself, well, here's the last guy that saw that guitar. Because there was always stories that it went to Guild, somebody at Guild had stole it, or it had been thrown away, you know, during the business trans, uh, transfers and so on. But every bit of that was true. It's, the story I was told was Guild never actually saw the guitar, ever. But uh, anyways, the, uh, the deal was made where John Page was going to build this guitar. And uh, well, let me, let me supersede something here. I thought to myself when I got that information and, and read this that, you know, we're going to be the, like a little detective, you know, we're going to solve this mystery. <clears throat> Uh, it's worth a phone call to Fender. That's what I thought. So I got on the phone and I called Fender, the you know, over to the custom shop and spoke to somebody there, can't remember who, and said, uh, I'm looking for John Page. And, uh, and they were like, John Page quit. He's out of the uh, guitar business. He doesn't want to be bothered anymore, you know, I don't know what's the matter with you people. You can't take a hint. <laughs> I guess people that, you know, have been trying to contact him for many, many years. And so I told him the story. I said, well, look, I'm doing some research on this guitar and maybe I'll, I was thinking maybe I'll be able to write an article, you know, and send it into, you know, guitar player or somebody. <clears throat> and, uh, they said, well, we'll take your information. We'll pass it along. If he wants to speak to you, he can make that decision. We don't want any part of it. Okay. Well, a few days later, I get a phone call from John Page. And <clears throat> so I, I just came out, you know, I'm like, you were the last one to see this guitar. And there are so many rumors and there's so many stories and there's fables and, you know, nobody knows exactly what happened. You're the last man in the line. And he said, it's all got thrown away. <laughs> and I thought, well, what do you mean? You know, this is, this is the end of the story. He said, uh, Brian had sent me the guitar and some prints and some other stuff. And uh, we started building a guitar and there was a fire. I think every bit of it got turned up into fire. Uh, I, we did save some things, but I have no idea. You're talking about stuff that happened 20 plus years ago. And John was actually very, very nice about every bit of it, but he kept, you know, saying the same thing. 
it was such a long time ago. Uh, I've had so many things happen to me. I really can't tell you. And so I thought, well, it was a dead end. And uh, a few days later, I get another phone call. And it's John Page. And he says, uh, are you at home? Can you get on your computer? And I said, well, yeah. <clears throat> he goes, uh, look in your email and I'll call you back. So, you know, I get online and, and uh, there's pictures of the John Birch guitar, the, the famous ones of the guitar laying in the case, broken in pieces. And uh, John called me back and he's like, you know, I started thinking and it was in a, a storeroom and it's been in a storeroom for decades. He goes, I, I feel really bad about this because I told Brian May the last time that we were uh, together because he was so excited about the way things were going and how much progress we, we had made. Um, he said it brought back a lot of the memories of when him and his father were building the guitar, which uh, I can understand that, you know, it's part of his life. And uh, so he, he's like, I feel bad about this. I, I want to get this guitar returned to him. You know, I shouldn't, I don't have any idea how I end, it ended up in a storeroom, but this guitar has been sitting in a case for decades. So I uh, reached out to Queens management and he had, what was that website he used to have? The so Soapbox. Yeah. I, I got a hold of Jackie through the soapbox. And, you know, the title was, I found the Birch guitar, you know, and I sent her pictures. And and I mean, it blew up. I, I, had, no, I had no idea people could search you down, you know, on the internet. And I had people calling, people emailing, you know, and so on, you know, I want that guitar. And I'm like, number one, I don't have the guitar. Number two, you're not getting the guitar. If anybody's <laughs> getting it, Brian May's getting it. And through talking with uh, Jackie and the management company and so on, and, and John Page was uh, directly involved, we made sure the guitar was returned to Brian's. And then uh, Andrew Guyton ended up fixing it. I'm, you saw it at the meetup, didn't you? Yeah, he's been to one of them. He's um, put it back together again and restored it relatively yeah. close to how it was. And I think they, they, you can still see some of the damage from it. So you can see where it, it's been restored so it works, but you can still see how it where, where it was broken, which is nice because I think it's part of the history of it rather than making it I think oh yeah, it it got messed up pretty bad. And I think it's currently the last time it was spotted was in um, a music. What am I trying to say? Like a um, a display in Liverpool about yeah. Queen, which mm -hmm. is where where I think it was last seen, which was last year at some point. Yeah, and uh, I mean it's it's part of the history, and 
it was, I, I was really dumbfounded when I got those pictures. And uh, so I had been in touch with John and we stayed in touch. And a little while, a bit of time had gone by. The guitar was shipped back to England and so on. And then one day I was at work and John Page called me and he's like, uh, you know, the, the neck and some of the uh, information that I had from this guitar. And I said, well, yeah, you told me every bit of it got destroyed. There was a fire. And he said, well... You know, we had some uh, body blanks made up and they were working on a bridge and the neck, the last time they'd done anything with the neck, he had taken the neck to Brian's uh, place in L.A. and where they were having a barbecue. And Brian was really happy, you know, he's like, this is just the way me and my father did it, you know, and uh you know, after that day, um, John Page went back to work and all hell had broken loose. You know, Fender was laying off people by the, you know, the hundreds. And uh, he had some stuff with his personal life that just didn't work out. And, you know, he just packed everything up, put it someplace to, for, uh, storage and he went out on the road he was like oh i'm gonna be a rock star well that didn't work out <laughs> so i guess a year and a half two years had gone by and he got offered to come back to fender and uh but they told him you're gonna you're gonna have to launch the um the custom shop that's when they were getting into that and they were doing some stuff with uh the Japanese models. He was he was in really a big part of that. So everything just sat, you know, they never went and got got back to it. The the neck from that day that he showed it to Brian had sat, you know, in the same state for 25, 26 years. And then uh it ended up here. You know, John said, look you have a really big interest in this. And if you want to finish what I started, then uh, I would, I would, you know, just let you finish it. He goes, I'm never, I don't have any interest in this. This is not what I do. Uh, at this time he was doing uh, really uh, high end tables and furniture and so on. And uh, wasn't long after um, we had talked, he thought about, you know, he's like, oh, you know, I think I'm going to try guitars again. And uh, he started up John Page Guitars, which wasn't, you know, a huge success. And uh, but he was he was always there if I had a question, you know, I got this information Came in, well, I put it in this nice book. It was actually a green notebook, a student notebook. <laughs> and it had 
all the information they had taken from the, the red special. And uh, John Page is like, if you think you can do this, then, you know, I'd rather you do it than it not get done at all. So that's, that's how that, that all started, you know. And it, it came in little bits and pieces and some big envelopes full of information. And, and it took almost two years to go through all those prints and everything and make sure that this was supposed to be the guitar that that they were working on. So kind of a long story, but. <laughs> it's a really interesting one, the river. It's so many, you know, just. It's I mean, I poor, poor John Page. He, <laughs> I would call him up. I, you know, hadn't spoken to him in six months and call him up and I'm like, what does this mean? You know, and, it, you know, there's a picture of a neck and then there's some numbers and so on. I said, what does this mean? I, you wrote it down. It means something. He's like, show it to me. Let me think, you know, oh, that's where the bridge is supposed to be. You know, that's <laughs> here. You know, I racked his brain and he was always really informative. I know he had to sit and think about some things, but if, uh, if he would have just said, this is what you got, go, go ahead and get it, then we wouldn't have been successful at all. Sounds like a lovely chat and a, a chance meeting, but the right person at the right time and being able to get that, that rapport with him to, for him to want to share the information with you. What, what a fantastic story. Even though, you know, there was a little bit of tragedy there with uh, some things that were going on with his life, uh, life worked out well for him. And uh, still today, you know, John's producing guitars and I follow a lot of his work and, and uh, it's amazing. It's just totally amazing. And uh, I don't know what happened with Fender. Uh, maybe he just got tired and walked away. Nobody, you know, who knows? But uh, the guitar world lost somebody when he, when he walked away from the business. Yeah. And I'm glad that he came back to it because it makes it a better business. Sounds like you helped him come back as well. So that's uh, all credit to you, sir. So. Well, I got, you know, a small little credit. But, you know, just the idea that, that somebody with that, that much, much knowledge is still doing it and he's enjoying it, you know. I watch him online and the, some of the stuff he does is just unbelievable. True craftsman. Yeah, so I do. We'll have to try and find him, track him down. Maybe you can help me get in touch with him see if he'd be interested in, in coming on and telling his story. That'd be. Uh, he probably, you know, he might, who knows? We'll see. Well, anyway, so that would be really cool. But so you, You've got this information and you said you spent two years going through it with the help of John and like piecing it together. What did you actually get from him? Was it just the neck and some hardware and a body or was it like what stage was it in when, you, when it came to you? The, the biggest part of it, the neck was, like I said, from it had, had not had um, any of the inlays in. Uh, what was it? Oh, the, we put the, the original style of in it to make it a little more like the original. Yeah. 
Um, I have no idea what the thinking was with the, the Martin style, you know, diamond shaped uh, flute, but uh, especially when they had the, uh, the John Birch guitar there, you know, who knows people, <laughs> there was more than one person working on it. And uh, it was kind of like a little project that they were doing at the custom shop along, along with everything else that they were doing on a daily basis. So uh, stuff could have sat for quite a long time and then get back to it. But uh, yeah, we, we got the knack, uh, the famous pickups that um, I had sent those to Addison. And, you know, I was like, these were uh, the ones that came from Julian. And uh, so we need to make sure that they're right. Because I believe one of them was, uh, the, there was a bad coil or, who knows, these things have been sitting, you know, in a box for 20 something years, 24 years. And God knows how long, you know, they've been sitting before that. So amazingly enough, uh, I sent them over to uh, Addison and then he came to Nashville I think he was doing some work with Gibson and uh, he hand delivered those pickups to me. We met for, for coffee and tea up at, uh, up in Nashville. And uh, I think he was traveling with his wife, but you know, <laughs> he, he brings the, the pickups out and they're in this little uh, box and so on. <clears throat> And I remember saying to him, oh, my God, the, the shipping on the, the delivery charge is going to kill me on these things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, actually, I'm here for some uh, some work with Gibson. I think they were using him for a consultant or something. And uh, I didn't really get all the information, but we got to, to spend some time. Uh, I'm not sure if Chris Mahoney was there or not. I believe he was supposed to be. But uh, another guy named Greg Lancaster was there and uh, we got to meet his, uh, his wife and uh, they had some tea and we had coffee. Well, I had tea also because I don't like coffee, but uh, <clears throat> we sat around and talked for a while and then he was like, well, I got things I got to do, guys. I can't stay here forever and part of the company. So as far as I know, those are the same pickups. He just did a little magic to them. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That is um, before the internet, really. Julian was sending letters and to people in states and communicating via letter and posting things with like absolute faith before the advent of being able to send emails and get an instant response, you know, you'd send a letter back then and you have to wait a couple of weeks to get something back if someone even responded. And it's a oh yeah, in this information, there's a letter from John Page to Julian and uh, he was saying that uh, 
he was apologizing, you know, for not getting back to him sooner. But back then, you know, if you if you heard from somebody, you know, a month or two late, you know, man, what a great response. Yeah. But he had gotten a hold of Julian through the mail service and told him, well, you know, we got the pickups and they're definitely going to go on the guitar and, you know, thank you so much. And uh, I guess they had gone through the Queen. He had taken them to the Queen offices and then uh, the Queen's offices had sent them to Fender. So, but the thing with, uh, with Fender was, uh, you know, that they just absolutely shot the whole idea down. Yeah. You know, here you have an international rock star that, you know, by 1983, they're just about to the pinnacle of their careers. Uh, and they're one of the largest touring bands in the world. Most everybody knows who they are. And to just shoot that that whole idea down was, you know, their words to John Page were, we don't do anything like that, so we're not interested. Crazy. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. <laughs> they, to me, they, they passed up on, you know, if you're a businessman and somebody throws a golden egg, you know, in your lap, you want to, and they're going to tell you where the goose is. You better start listening, because yeah. you can be very successful with this for everybody. Because even in that article, uh, and Brian had talked about it before, was it would be nice if you know people could uh, get this this guitar, you know, because it's so unique and fan letters and you know postcards and stuff that came to the queen offices every day. Where can I get one of these? Where can I get one of these, you know? And then people like Julian and Mark, well, I can't buy one, so I'm gonna make one. You know, the the story that Julian told was, I, I bet you I've watched that, you know, a dozen times already. Just the idea was like, oh, you know, come on stage and we're gonna bring your guitar. And then he was smart enough to, uh, take a piece of paper so he yeah. could get a tracing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, you know, Julian got the chance, to, Julian met Harold as well, which is just one of those things that it's, it must have been phenomenal to meet. To meet oh, yeah, to meet, to meet somebody of that stature. I mean, you know, especially after they broke and uh, they broke big here in the States and his father got to be there that night at the Madison Square Garden, and he yeah. they finally figured it out, you know. And uh, even though there was some bad things that happened in the past, they it brought them together. And it was all because, you know, well, we don't have money to buy you a guitar, but uh, we'll piece something together for you. Yeah. You know. Well, Brian said it's, it's the irony to me in the, the podcast, the irony of um, his dad spending two years making him the guitar, then making the guitar together, and then no interest in him actually using it to become a professional musician after <laughs> he'd helped him build it. So, so. Wasn't there a story that somebody tried to trade him away out of that thing I'm years sure. ago? Quite possibly. Yeah. There's lots of um, stories and fables around, isn't there, around various elements and... Oh, some of the stories I've heard, 
you know, at these shows, you know, I, I was in Dallas and I think it was 2015 and I'm in my booth and uh, Paul Reed Smith, he was a big supporter of the Dallas guitar show. And uh, he comes in my booth and he was looking at one of the Epic guitars that I built. And I was like, well, I kind of stole this idea from you. He's like, well, we all do that. And then he picked up a red special. He looks at it and he goes, you know, I got to work on this. And I, I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, uh, the original Shallers, I put those on. I'm like, really? <laughs> and I, he quick told me the story. And, you know, the, they had the guitar in for... Uh, to do some work on it. And it had the uh, mixed up tuners and so on. And according to the story that I was told and came from the horse's mouth that he changed them out, put, them, put the original shallers on. And uh, I'm not sure who put the locking ones on. I guess it would be Greg Fryer. Yeah, it was Greg, yeah, in 98. So yeah. Paul, was, Paul was the reason why they ended up with the shallows after the it used to have the original Japanese open back Taisco and the one on the G string, which you can see in the Starlix video and you can see live. And then it it flips and changes in um, just before Live Aid. Yeah, yeah. It's got the shallows so, on. And there was a lot of stories that, uh, you know, the guitar was taken in and uh, Paul Reed Smith's shop and like so many other guitar builders, like, oh, I can build you one of these. And I didn't get anybody to admit it. <laughs> but the stories that I was told was that uh, Paul had taken the guitar apart. And when they found out about it, the, you know, Queen's people, Brian May's people were furious, you know, because even Andrew Guyton, you know, when he was talking on, on, uh, his podcast, he said the first time he got to see the guitar, he didn't take the neck out, didn't take the tremolo system out, you know, and all that had come apart, you know, and I don't even think John Page took took the, the neck out of the guitar or anything. Now there's some, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, people had to be, took a picture you had to use a little instamatic camera yeah. with little one tens you know and then you take the film get it developed and so on well along with the stuff that john sent me there were the little four by four instamatic pictures of the guitar with uh the pick guard off and you know you could see down inside the guitar those were totally unreleased you know they're sitting in a cabinet over here in my dining room area and uh, I don't think they, anybody, anybody outside of Fender ever saw them, you know. The, nobody knew what was underneath that pick card, yeah. you know. Even, <laughs> even Guyton, he said, uh, I looked underneath that pick card and saw that, and he's like, oh, God, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> no, he did. Yeah, no, it's, it's very true. There's a lot going he, on under there. He, he did a good job. I mean, it was... Uh, I've seen some of his stuff over the years, and man, he, he's a true artist. He definitely is. But you, you yourself, Everett, you at some point 
you, I can't remember the order, so forgive me if I get it wrong, maybe I'd point it out. I remember finding you and first learning of you on the old Brian Maywold forum, which used to be on the brianmaywold.net um, or brianmaywold.com, which is the red and black website. And we had the forum there. So I think Chris Mahoney was on originally, and then I think you came along. But at what point did you think about your own business and coming up with RS custom guitars? And when was that in your story? And and tell us a little bit about how that started and who who was involved in, in the early days and where you got to with that. Most of it started with Chris Mahoney, you know. He's the bastard that started all this. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, uh, Chris was very, very enthusiastic. I met Chris back in like 2000, you know. He had, he had a, a music store out in Las Vegas, and they were huge. And 9-11 uh, killed everything that him and his family worked for. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chris came out here, you know, looking for a new life. And uh, he was very enthusiastic about the whole thing. And, uh, you know, he's a businessman. He's like, well, you know, uh, was it uh, Steve Turpin? He was kind of winding down about that time. Um, but KZ was becoming well-known and so on. He's like, if they're doing it, we should try. And I'm kind of like, well, yeah, let's, you know, let's build some guitars for ourselves and so on. And it, it started to roll and things started to come together. You know, I, I built a building out back you know, that was going to be the shop that we were going to build in. And uh, I don't know if you remember a guy named uh, Tim Zukowski. Remember Tim? Queen yeah, I, I was at home, you know, working out in the building one day and my phone rang. It was Tim Zukowski. And he's like, I'm coming to your house. I'm like, well, who in the hell are you? And he says, I'm, I'm a fan. I, you know, I watch this stuff online. I'm here to uh, do some work. Uh, they were in the horse thing. His, I think his daughter was a, a veterinarian or studying to be or something. Anyways, it had to do with horses. And he said, I'm about an hour away from your house. If you don't mind, I want to come to your house. I want to meet you. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> I have no idea who this guy is. Never seen him before. Never spoke to him before. And uh, he showed up at my house and we, he looked at what I had been working on, my prints and stuff. And um, he's like, who's going to do your hardware? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to have to source it out. And I said, the first few guitars, I guess we'll, you know, uh, just onesie twosie it right here in the shop and he's like well I'm a machinist this is what I do for a living and I want to build your hardware I'm like well here's a set of prints let me know what you come back with I just thought this guy's you know full of shit <laughs> and he came back with you know he's a machinist and there these guys you know if you're a good machinist then 
he came back with everything spec perfect. And uh, which was kind of good because we used John Page's measurements. And uh, John, when he measured everything, it was, you know, it would be like 1.005, you know, or whatever the measurement was. He measured everything out past the decimal point. So when we laid everything out, you know, on a one-to-one -one drawing, looked right, felt right, and came out right when it was done off the machine. So I was happy. But I mean, this guy I'd never seen before just shows up at my house with his his family. You know, I want to I want to work on this project with you. You know, and I'm like, okay, we'll jump on board. You know. <laughs> And uh, Chris Mahoney, uh, he was working with the guys from Crafters. And because he wanted to accelerate things a lot faster than I did. And I'd say Chris had a lot of energy about this whole thing. <clears throat> and uh, I think he was working with uh, Greg Covington. They were doing uh, amplifiers at the time the little small DT amplifiers. And uh, he produced a few guitars, but the whole thing with crafters just didn't work out. They, they didn't treat Chris the way that he needed to be treated, you know, any customer. So um, that was kind of downfall for Chris as far as the red special, you know, building red specials. But uh, he worked on it with me and then, uh, he went his own way for a little while, and then he kind of came back into the fold. And uh, today, Chris is uh, in Oklahoma, works in guitar effects. He has his own little business, and he's doing really well. I see, I see him at guitar shows and so on, and uh, you know, have a drink, talk about you know old times, and uh, hope for the best for the next day. I guess. <laughs> It's yeah. just saying such. Yeah. But I was finishing up my, all my drawings and everything, and I I, I bought a uh, God, one of those huge Eklund uh, pin routers, you know, and bought a bunch of equipment out there. And I, I would spend a couple of hours every day out in the shop before I work, go to work at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I produced a guitar that I thought was pretty good. Um, and, but I'm no painter. I'm not a painter at all. <clears throat> and uh, I had put an ad on Craigslist looking for a painter. And I get a hold of uh, a guy that was on Craigslist his name was John Scott, and uh, he was working for a company in Nashville that did uh, painting for the guitar world. You know, they it was a it was a regular shop, but he's uh, the the owner Stephen Fazio. He specialized in uh, painting, you know, for guitars and so on. He was a trained luthier, and he also went to some master classes for finishing for Gibson and Fender and so on. This kid was an artist and uh, John Scott was working for him 
And I talked to him on the phone and I said, I'm, I'm doing this guitar, you know, and I would like to, you know, get this first one painted. And I'll well, bring it up, you know. So we, I drive up to Nashville and uh, you could, you could make this stuff up. I walked into their shop and there was John Scott and uh, he's kind of a big fella and he's standing there at the saw and I said hello and John turned his head to look to see who it was and he dinged his finger with the saw. <laughs> so the first time we met the guy, you know, he's bleeding. <laughs> He almost cut his finger off and uh he took me upstairs and and i met steven and everything and steven was probably 22 23 years old maybe he was young and uh i showed him the guitar and told him what i was doing and he's like i can help you do that and i'm like what do you think what do you mean i you know because i said you know someday it would really be great if i could produce these for other people he's like that's what we do here you know and I said okay well let's get this first one painted and see how and he's like oh if you want well you know we'll do one and we we did one and uh turned out okay because he was a trained luthier he did a lot of things that the you know, I'm like, this is wrong. We've got to do that. We ended up destroying the guitar. <laughs> and it, it grew into, um, it, it grew into something I thought was kind of special. I mean, we um, produced, I really couldn't tell you how many instruments, but it was, this the special part of the whole thing for me was, when you would go to a show and people walk into the booth for the first time and they see it, or somebody would come down to pick up a guitar and they open the case for the first time, you know, and they pick it up. And it's to know that somebody's going to appreciate that, you know, that by no means were these things super cheap. You know, they weren't a $150 guitar oh. made in China. But uh, the people that were buying them, you know, we, my thing was, this is an instrument for life. You know, it was for Brian, and I hope it would be for most people that have bought them. They, so they saved their money. You know, most of them were baby boomers that remembered the band, remember Queen, you know, re remember Brian May and Starlicks and everything else. And they're, you know. I never liked the guilds, and now there's a you know something here in the United States that we can get. So it kind of just started with six guitars that we've done in a run, and then it just kind of snowballed. You know, we would do four to six at a time, and uh, to make sure that uh, we weren't pushing things back too far because uh let me tell you about the guitar business nobody's on time ever 
<laughs> you ask me, ask anybody that's done a guitar show, they'll they'll tell you. You know, the first time, yeah, we were putting guitars together in, in the back of a van driving to the show. You know, everybody does that. But uh, it it grew into uh, kind of a, a little bit of a following. It was a niche thing. And uh, I enjoyed the, most of the people. I, I got to really meet some great people. I got to uh, do some great things. And, uh, you know, now that I'm older, I'm glad I did it. You know, it's a, it was never always fun, but it was fun. I think often in life, though, at the time, things aren't ever that fun. It's only when you look back later on, you go, that was quite fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember doing our first show down in Arlington, Texas, and Stephen had been at the shop sleeping in a chair between uh, drying time on, you know, spraying for weeks and... uh, yeah, we were actually putting guitars together in the hotel room yeah. and walking over to the the guitar show. You know, we'd get one done and go over and so on. And, uh, you know, you're up for days at a time. And, but the adrenaline and, and uh, everything that's going on around you, it, it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. There must be quite a few out there still dotted around the world of your guitars. You see the odd one come up in um, Reverb or eBay every now and again, but there's still quite a few around, I'd have thought. Yeah, I actually tried to buy one back. And uh, a guy in California had it in a shop on consignment and they posted a video that was on reverb and, you know, I was at work and I called him, you know, because, uh, I just didn't have one at the time, you know? And, uh, so I called the guy up and I'm like, I'd like to buy this guitar. And he's like, Oh, what? You were way too late, pal. I said, well, you just posted this thing. He goes, yeah, well, it didn't last that long, you know? And, uh, He's like, I can get your information. And I told him who I was. And he's like, are you the guy that built these? I said, well, there was a team of three of us. And it was all, you know, that's one thing I need to tell everybody. There was three of us. And, you know, Stephen Fazio and Sean Pettin, me, we, we were the ones that were starting with a big chunk of wood and ended up with an instrument in, in a beautiful case. And uh, these guys, you know, since I had my regular day job, they put a lot of time in and uh, Stephen put his heart and soul into it. And when he had to give up his business, I know it hurt him, but uh, now he works in aeronautical engineer. So he moved on to bigger and better things. He's, he's actually a rocket scientist. (laughs) It's pretty cool. Yeah. Just started off with you, Everett, making red specials. So, you know, if you can make a red special, you can make anything. 
Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, there's a lot goes into them, that's for sure. That, as you said, they're not made like regular guitars. And when you actually take it apart and understand the guitar and how the knife edge works and the roller bridge and then how the guitar goes together and what goes inside and the process and then having to veneer it and then the side and all the different elements of it is such a you know you, you really have to it always amazes me when I think about it and stop and think about it usually talking to someone on the podcast especially talking to you who put them together but you and I I've, I've built one and we you know not necessarily to the scale you you have but when you start speaking to people that have built them and you know how much work goes into it and then you think back, we've got all these power tools and we've got reference photos and plans and information and photos. The mind of Brian and Harold when there wasn't something and they were making this out of thin air and scrap, you know, coming up with these ideas and, and whatnot. It's just absolutely mind-boggling at the, the time in the world that it was, and also that it was a father and this 15-year-old kid making this thing that, as you said, has, has stood the test of time. And trying to copy it is not easy even though there's oh, something to copy. Just the, you know, just the idea of hand making rollers yeah. is absurd. You know, use a, a, a CNC machine, you know, a lathe that, and uh, a wire machine that cuts out the uh, tremolo system, you know, and I couldn't imagine doing it, you know, you have to have so much patience and to be, you know, 15, 16 years old, you know, when I was 15 or 16 years old, I had an interest in, you know, you couldn't keep me interested in anything, yeah. you know, and, but he had his father there with him and it was something that, that bonded them together for their lifetime, you know, Imagine how many kids that really wish that they could have, you know, a small amount of that with their yeah. parents. Definitely. Well, it's, it's, it, the whole thing is just fascinating. And, you know, it's, it is that. It's not just the, the engineering marvel that it is and the fact that, one, it, it works. Two, it, I think it looks absolutely stunning. And the design is, is aesthetically pleasing, which isn't easy to do either when you've got, different spaces like the scratch plate and the body and to get something that's aesthetically nice is quite hard especially when you're an engineer because usually engineers are looking at things working um, and how best they work rather than how they necessarily look on the end of it and to not you know to have hand drawn that rather than to you know we chuck it in CAD and go oh that doesn't quite look right we'll shoot that bit off and well we'll print one of them off or we'll We'll cut one of those on the CNC and have a look and then go, oh, no, we don't like it. We'll edit that bit. But to do it old school with drawings and, and put it together, it's just just mind boggling what they came up with. And I think oh, you're right. Yeah. If, if, if you could try and bottle that and have that with your own your own family or your own father or your own son, I, what an amazing thing to have done. And then to have as a as a family heirloom, as a memento, as a token of of that bond, but then to go on and become one of the world's greatest guitar players and in one of the, if not the world's best band ever, and use that thing that you made with your dad for 50, 60 years. If you, uh, if it wasn't true, people would, and you wrote it down, people would think this story would never sell. <laughs> no one would ever believe it. 
Uh, I'll give you a little reference story that I've heard from so many different people when I was in the business and they were all the same story about Brian May. Uh, one in particular was he had gone to Westerly, Rhode Island to the Guild Factory. And when they were building those guitars in the early 80s, they didn't have any money. I mean, literally, that company was stone cold broke. And uh, one of the guys, Jay, that worked for Guild, he did some of the photography and so on like that. Well, long story short, they uh, had this, you know, big luncheon with everybody at the factory and had this international rock star that was visiting to see where they were going along on this new project and everything. And they had for the luncheon, it was kind of like a barbecue outside there at the factory. And Brian's there, you know, and everybody's talking to him and so on. And there was a little Fender Squire uh, Stratocaster and one of the little Fender guitars that were sitting around. And Brian's picked it up and started playing it. And Jay said, I know the guitar is a big part of it, but it's in his hands. He goes, he picked up that $100 guitar and started playing it through that $15 amp. And it was Queen. It was Brian May. Yeah. And I've heard that story so many times. No, it's definitely. So, um, and, you know, we we talk a lot about this, and I think about it a lot as well. It's, the guitar is really important because it, of what it stands for. But as a fan of it, you know, I'm guilty myself, obviously, of, of going to the nth degree to get my own replica red special as close to the original as possible but actually no matter whether i owned the original or not i would still sound like me and i'd still sound i can i would never sound like brian through 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 brian's rig so maybe some of it is a bit a bit silly to go to the nth degree that i do but i don't know it's um it's all different for everyone isn't it 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 becomes an like an obsession Yep. You know, there's some people that are crazy about football. You know, they know everything about every quarterback or whatever. You know, or there's guys that are crazy about fishing. There's guys that are crazy about hunting, whatever their thing is. This is just something that's caught our interest and we want to know everything, you know. And there was no real information out there, you know, that Julian had used pictures and, you know, and he passed some information along to Mark and so on. Uh, I mean, one of the guys I ran, met around here, Dustin McGinnis, he was yeah. a friend of, uh, he was a friend of the, the forum and so on. And uh, he ended up just living a few miles away from me. I had no idea, <clears throat> but... <laughs> It's a name from the past, Dustin McGuinness. That's a, that's for sure. That's wow. I've not heard that for a while. No, it's crazy, he, isn't it? And and where it's all gone. He uh, he called me one day, and I had sent a guitar 
to England to have Brian sign it. You know, I had a 90, 93 guild. And uh, so I sent it, you know, sent a message over there and they're like, yeah, send it along. So I send it to there and Brian signs it and everything. And it, it got shipped back. And the weekend that it got shipped back, Dustin McGinnis calls me. He's like, hey, uh, Brian's going to be playing in Chicago at the uh, some music store. You should come with me. I'm going up there and get my guitar signed. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Brilliant. But, uh, you know, uh, but Dustin was hooked up with, uh, with Mark Reynolds and yep. I got to know Mark and, um, you know, he was a wealth of information, you know, <clears throat> that's, um, in the nineties, I remember, uh, getting a set of plans, uh, for the hardware, you know, and making it like the guild. And I did a few myself. I'm not any way in shape or form am I a really great machinist, but I had all that equipment available to me at GM. So uh, I spent a little of my spare time in the maintenance shop and I made some parts and so on. And, uh, you know, that really kind of started it. It was a little bit of an itch there, you know? Yeah. Because if you had a set of knobs, you know, people were going crazy where do I get these? You know? Yeah. Now, I remember myself finding the forum and, um, you know, it was before the, just before the Burns guitars came out. It's probably a few years before the, or a year before the Burns guitars came out. So the original Burns guitars, which I have not one of the originals, but a Burns here. Um, mm -hmm. And you couldn't get, apart from the guilds and maybe the KZ, you couldn't get stuff and no one was selling parts really at that point. So the only way to get them was if, I think at that point, Mark Reynolds had made a few sets of parts for some people to help them out. Um, yeah. And then you had a few different people building them. So it was an Italian website where you could buy some for a period of time. Um, yeah, I remember that. But that you couldn't you couldn't get this stuff anywhere. There was no one making it. You either had to know someone that would, you know, you could owe, owe a favor to later on down the road or or just never get anything because there was just nowhere to get them so as soon as someone made them or as soon as someone like posted a picture literally everyone was like where'd you get that from where'd you get that from <laughs> it's, it's much <laughs> oh, different yeah. now where you've got you know you've got um ron smith making parts from the cyber shop where you you know you can you can get them in three or four days now if you if you want to get hold of them and yeah he, he's he's really turned that into a a, a really unique thing you know, he met uh, Chris Mahoney and Chris had some prints and he he made a few parts for him. You know, he, he didn't do a big run. So the stuff was really expensive. I remember Chris, you know, he was like, oh, my God, this has cost me, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for the smallest thing. And um, then. Chris sold a bunch of that stuff off. I think Woody bought a bunch of it. And uh, then I got a hold of him. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> I got a hold of Chris and I said, uh, Tim, uh, was he, he just 
with his job and everything, he just couldn't keep up. And uh, it wasn't becoming cost effective. So I said, who's the guy that you used? And he's like, oh man, it's this guy, Ron Smith. You know, he, he wouldn't believe this guy. And I think at the time, Ron was doing motorcycle parts, you know, custom motorcycle parts. And he was working for a shop over in Laverne, I think, somewhere here in Tennessee, Gallatin, maybe. <clears throat> They're all in the same area. And uh, so I took some prints over there and I took them to three or four shops in, in Nashville. And most everybody just turned me away, you know, and... Uh, but I sat down with Chris or with uh, Ron and he's like, let me look through these. I'll get back with you. And he made a couple little changes, you know, to, to uh, make them easier to machine. And uh, it was on from there, you know, he did a run for me and then I bought some more parts off him. And uh, he called up one day and he's like, hey, so-and-so overseas, uh, they want to buy some of these parts. You know, I'm like, hey, if you can do something with this, more power to you, you know. And uh, it's just grown and grown and grown now. Yeah. And, you know, he's doing stuff for the, uh, what is it, the Time Warp guitars? Yep. Yeah. And uh, when he he showed me the, his stuff, you know, uh, when he had some samples for me, totally blown away, yeah. you know, and uh, it's it's turned into a nice little thing for him now that he's retired and, uh, you know, it's it's all good for everybody. <laughs> Definitely. And it's changed. So, I mean, it feels so quick, but maybe 20 years isn't that quick, but um, it's gone are the days where it was difficult to find the information out there was no book there was no like greg fryer website with all the restoration photos there was no pre like it was a path untrodden really yeah back in the day and it was people like yourself and chris mahoney and, and tim zakowski and kz and um steve turpin before and then you know, Andrew Guyton coming on the scene in the early 2000s are really paving the way for what is now our easier access to red specials. And it's, you know, it's a credit to you because if you hadn't done it, we might not be where we are today. And that's irrespective of, of how it worked out for you, Everett, and where you ended up. <clears throat> but if you hadn't gone down that path and met some of these people and, you know, you've introduced Ron Smith to the community and what, what a fantastic ambassador for the community ron is and and he's enabled so many people to be able to build guitars that wanted to that couldn't find parts and then you've got the whole conversion forum and the whole whole group of people that, that work with woody on conversions and you know it's it's just it's made the community although you wouldn't have been aware of it none of us were at the time it's just made the community so much richer for people sharing information and 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 helping people out it's just a much nicer place to be now than than it ever not that it wasn't nice before but but then it could have been i suppose is probably the best way uh, with woody was another one he was like tim what woody called me and I, I was doing the nam show i think it was 2007 and i got invited by an amplifier company 
uh, JMI amplifiers. Uh, I had met them in Texas a few months earlier and through a friend um, of John Scott and Mark Taylor, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, we were going to do the NAM show together. And Woody calls up and he's like, hey, you guys going to be at the NAM show? And I'm like, yeah, you know, we're going out there and give it a try, you know. And he's like, well, I want to come meet you. And I'm like, okay. You know, another guy, you know, you met him through the community and he showed up at the shop and uh, he bought it. Woody had bought a couple of guitars off me. You know, some of the first ones, the natural uh, Supreme, uh, which I guess he just got back and changed hands a few times. Then it's back in his hands. Uh, but I mean, to somebody come all the way from New Jersey to Nashville, Tennessee, just to hang out with us for a little while, you know, unbelievable. And he was telling me about, you know, uh, yeah, I've got this idea and, and uh, this is, you know, the way it's going to work out. And it's grown into something big for him, you know, because of that, he's not doing a nine to five job, you know, someplace he hates. And he's home with his boys. Um, he gets to be with his family. And he's doing something that he really enjoys doing, you know. And uh, God, I wish I could have done that my whole life, but it didn't work out that way. <laughs> no, but you've, you've helped him, him do that. So, you know, you've got you to remember your, your part in all of this. It's, it's a good part to play. To, have, you, have you got one of your original guitars that you made now in your possession? Uh, well, I got the John Bird. I actually got the pick guard off it because I was uh, changing the color of the wire. <laughs> so is this your replica of the John Birch guitar? Mm-hmm. Yep. John. Very we, nice. We changed a couple things on this guitar. The neck angle was way too steep and uh, it was very, it was long gated and so on. But uh, it's kind of a cool piece. I just, this is one of them, uh, you know, you probably end up keeping and your, your grandkids end yeah. up selling it on eBay because I don't know what the hell it is. <laughs> well, I'm sure they will, um, you have to force them to watch the podcast so you know how important it is. <laughs> Oh, well, but uh, everything that that I can say that I was a part of all came from this information, yeah. you know, this book. <clears throat> and uh, like, well, I'll show you the. It is taken apart right now, but if you can see. The neck is over top of the body. It's not as wide as the neck is. Yeah. So if you go through 
there's a drawing here, which I'll send you a good picture of it. You see the screws coming through the back? Yep. That's how they were going to do the neck, just like the do a neck pocket like the fender and, uh, and yeah. run screws from behind. And I looked at this for God awful long time, as you can see how they were trying to figure it out. Yeah. They made that nice little pocket and everything fit in there real good, but it wasn't anything like the original. When you got the guitar, you obviously started putting it the John Page guitar, we're jumping around a bit, but that's fine. You, you obviously then put it together completely and made the full guitar that it should have been with all of the parts. How much extra bits and pieces did you have to do? Or how many extra decisions did you have to make? Or was it all pretty much, obviously the, the neck connection you've just discussed was you've made it more like the original, but was it pretty close to how, how it should have ended up? And, with the drawings and the stuff that I was sent, we did one-to-one -one drawings to begin with and uh, then laid them out in AutoCAD and looked at them in 3D, cut the stuff out. First thing we did was cut out some MDF to make sure everything's supposed to be where it's supposed to be. Slap it all together. There it was, the red special sitting there on the bench. And you're like, where in the hell did that come from? But I mean, <laughs> that just goes to show you, you know, they did, they used the, the drawings that everybody has seen, you know, because of the book and so on. If you take those uh, drawings and you line up the cellophane tape markings and so on, and you measure everything out, it's perfect. That's, that's what they were using. Yeah. So if you have that information, you pretty much got the the uh, roadmap to get you to the red special. And that's what we were using. Now, I did I did make some changes when I, you know, when we were RS custom guitars. Um, the idea of having exposed screws up underneath the veneer, you know, even if they're countersunk and so on. Um, all that stuff moves around and that ends up cracking veneer and cracking finishes and so on. And uh, I just, I didn't want to have that warranty item bothering me. So uh, wherever there was a screw, we put a dowel pin, you know, put an oak dowel pin in yeah. and then everything was glued together. I know that uh, uh, on the, knife edge there's the the long screws with the big washers that go through the back of the guitar you know uh the way we mounted it and and so on we just never felt that we needed to run screws through the back and have something exposed back there that's gonna move around and crack so i didn't i didn't do that kind of stuff yeah but to keep it is you know to the guy that's not looking for you know, the pick guard screw to be in a certain space place because it's not biting any wood, then, you know, they're excited about getting the guitar. Yeah. And then there's the guys like, you know, what do they call them? Acroids or something? Anoraks. Anoraks, yeah. Oh, man. 
that screw's in the wrong place. Well, we moved it for a reason, you know. <laughs> no, it's all good. There's not, you know, it's, I remember, oh, there's so many memories of pouring over pictures of, of various red specials and when they came out and the excitement of someone new building one and, and someone getting one and then doing a review or talking about it. It's, it's a really fun time to have been around in the forum back in the day when new information was coming out it was it was great and I, i'd never realized how much information you, you you'd had ever it so actually all this stuff you know uh i went through it so many times trying to figure out what won't wear what you know this that and the other thing and then uh you know uh, i did have some conversations with uh John Page. I had conversations with uh, Greg Fryer. Um, I don't think I ever got to talk to KZ. He he was at a NAM show that I was supposed to go to, and then something came up. I couldn't make it, but I think Stephen met him. So uh, it's nice to meet uh, the true players and some of this yeah. stuff, you know, and to get their perspective on things and see how they're doing things. And, you know, um, KZ's doing some really great stuff, you yeah. know. Definitely, his, his guitars are fantastic. And at the time, I mean, they weren't the KZ Pro back then, were they? They were just a KZ. Yeah. Special. <laughs> and you could buy one for not a lot of money in comparison to what they cost now. Um, obviously everything's gone up but I remember looking at those photos and think this is something else his attention to detail at that point and the craftsmanship of those guitars because all that there wasn't YouTube or YouTube was around but it wasn't anywhere near what it is now so you know websites would have like KZ's website used to have I don't know maybe 50 or 60 different build photos that you could go and, and look through and spent hours online clicking through and going, oh, I wonder if that's changed. Oh, there's a new photo. Or download that in case the internet breaks and um, print that out and put it in a file and have a look at it later. <laughs> this is gone of those days. Well, I was, I was lucky. I, I, uh, I had a lot of the Guild guitars. And, uh, you know, after I got out of the Navy and got a little more substantial in my life, um, I think it was 1995, I, I bought a 83 Guild, number 153. And uh, I still have that guitar today. So it's been like 30, 30 years, you know. But uh, I bought it used from a session player in, in Cleveland, Ohio. And this poor guy was freezing to death in this crappy little one bedroom apartment and he hadn't worked, you know, and it's winter time. And he, so I went to go buy the guitar and I thought, well, I probably lowball this guy a little bit. I mean, he's, he's got a chair, a lamp and a 12 inch TV. Yeah. <laughs> when I uh, looked at the guitar, I, said uh are you firm on it he goes look you wouldn't have drove all the way over here if you did if you knew if you did not know what it was worth so i paid him what he wanted for it and i still have that guitar day and that led into 
this huge obsession where uh, I would buy every guild that I could get my hands on. And that's how I met, uh, uh, what, Mike Kramer. I don't know if you remember him, but uh, he was huge in the, he had so many of the guild brine made guitars and uh, Ernest from Abalone uh, finished guitars. Uh, was that Michael J. Kramer? Yeah, Michael J. Kramer. Yeah, I remember Popeye. Mike. Everybody yeah. called him Popeye. And uh, I, at one time, I had like 150 Brian May guitars. Wow. That were made by Guild. I had a bedroom that was, you know, two lines of guitars all the way around the room. They were stacked up in cases. And uh, I had some really cool prototypes and some great colored guitars, you know, different colors that you could only get, you know, on a certain run. And, and, uh, unfortunately I got divorced and I had to sell all that stuff, <laughs> but I, you know, that's meeting Mike Kramer through that was, uh, a big deal. You know, he, he was, he was a, a friend up until his untimely death a few years back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was a big part of it. And uh, he was hooked up with KC. And I, I remember when uh, he told me he ordered his, you know, how long he had to wait and so on. And he got the guitar and he was just blown out of the water with it, you know. And he had so many different items or different guitars. It was unbelievable. And uh, sad, you know, we lost him. Definitely. You're such a big part of the forum as well, the old forum, and he's quite a character from memory. And um, he wasn't he, afraid he to came down. He came down to Nashville on a whim one time. He just, you know, hey, I'm going to come down. We were getting ready to debut the guitars, and he's like, I'm going to come down for it. So he jumps on a plane, you know, shows up here. He stayed with me for, I think he was here four days. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm, I met so many great people. One of the, uh, one person I met, it turned out to be, uh, he ended up being like my best friend, my brother, and that was Leo Lopez. And uh, I, had been watching a Brian May guitar on eBay and he was bidding on it and somebody outbid us both at the last minute, you know? And so I get a hold of Leo. Back then you could just click on his name and gave you all his information. Yeah. <laughs> so I called him up and I said, are you looking for a Brian May guitar? And he's like, yeah, I'm doing this project. And I said, well, I got a new old stock, you know, I'll let you have it for your last bid. You know, you're willing to pay that much, then I'll let you have it for your your last reasonable bid. And he's like, okay. So he ships it, you know, and we start talking. He's like, oh, by the way, I own two Guitons. And I'm like, I don't know anybody that owns a Guiton, you know. He's like, well, I got a green one and I've got a red one. He's got the number 10 greenie and uh, 
that's how the whole thing came about with the uh, scallop guitar was Leo had got a hold of Guyton and said, I want a green one. I'll take number 10, but it's got to be scalloped. And Brian's like, nope, no, nope, we're not changing anything for anybody. And so when he called, uh, Guyton called him back and Leo said, how about if I, if I buy a red one too? I'll buy two of them. And He's like, well, let me talk to him. So he goes back and he goes, guys must be serious. He's going to buy two guitars. He's in, and so they got the guitar ready to go and everything. And you get to the part where Brian's going to, they have to sign the headstock. And uh, Brian wrote on the back of it uh, to Leo, do good, do good things. I think that was what it was. And he autographed it. And uh, he played it and he's like, well, I'm, you're going to have to make him another one because I like this one. <laughs> Andrew told him, well, uh, this guy's waited, you know, a long time. So, you know, we got to, we got to send this guitar to him. Well, I, I want one then. So he, he's got his scallop guitar <laughs> and it was on his web for, for the longest time. Yeah. It said, uh, it's all your fault, Leo. Yeah. <laughs> So I had been talking to him. We became, you know, friends online. And uh, he, you know, I got these two guitars and so on. And I said, man, I would just love to see him. He says, come on up. You know, another person I don't know, really. He's like, invites me into his whole world. He meets me at the airport me and my two friends with this great big sign, you know, takes us out for breakfast. We go to his warehouse and we're looking at guitars and playing stuff. And, you know, uh, he's got so many great things. And then he's like, oh, I need to show you this project that I was talking about. He had taken that brand new old stock Brian May that I had sold him and butchered it. <laughs> He changed the wiring and, you know, did some routing on it and stuff like that. And uh, I was a little bit heartsick, but he and he ended up, you know, uh, doing a lot of the bigger shows with me and we traveled together and, uh, you know, uh, God, it's been 20 years and yeah. I speak to him probably three, four times a week. And we're still friends, you know. It's, That's the great. It's nice that I got to meet somebody like that, just because of the interest in this instrument. Well, and I think that's the great thing of the the internet and the forum back then, and this instrument and what Brian stands for and how Brian does things, because it tends to attract a certain kind of individual, and. I always say I've met some of my best friends through this and they live all around the world and I speak to them nearly daily and without this I don't think I would have such not that my normal the friends that I grew up with aren't, aren't wonderful and I don't love spending time with them but when you meet someone that's got a true passion like you do and you come together through that passion it's a different bond and it's it's really um 
maybe it's just because we're not doing it in other things, but it's, it feels really unique in the Red Special world when you meet that those people that, are, that really understand you and your passion and your, your thoughts on things and, and you just click. It's like family spread out across the world. It's fantastic. Yeah. And to run into some of these people that had worked on all these different projects, you know, we got to meet some of the people that uh, worked on the, the Brian May guitars in, in the girl, Guild Factory, you know, and uh, the guy that shot the pictures and, uh, you know, the whole story behind uh, the treble boosters and so on. You know, there was just always so many stories, you know, there was a lawsuit because of Pete Cornish and all this. <laughs> it's all bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> you know they were expensive people didn't want to spend the money they didn't understand it the the guy that was making them uh you know he made them until they just said well we don't have a demand for them so we're not going to make any more but now if you've got one today you know they're like a block of gold yeah they are it's one of those things. Oh, hindsight's a wonderful thing, Everett. <laughs> you knew what we knew today, 20 years ago, we'd have all bought and sold and kept hold of different things and and uh, been very wealthy, probably. But no, it's it's great. And so the John Page guitar that you've got, what are your plans with that? Are you you're going to put that back together again and, and keep oh, it? Oh, I've got the, the uh, pick guard off it just because... I changed that wiring, you know, it was one of those things where we put it together to take it to Dallas and uh, I didn't have the right color for the wire for the pickups, right. you know, so I'm changing strings or something and I was like, oh, I'm going to look underneath. Oh, that's always going to bug me. So you take everything apart you know? <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, the John Page guitar. Um, I don't know. One one of the things I do know it's for sure is uh, I'm at the age where I'm getting ready to retire. This should be my last year working. And uh, where I'm living in Spring Hill, Tennessee, um, we were lucky enough to find a pretty good sized piece of property. And uh, my wife and I were like, kind of like newlyweds we'd been married like two years you know so uh how do i say this we were over enthusiastic when it came to building this house so built this big house when we were in our 40s now that we're in our 60s we're like damn we got to get rid of this big house <laughs> Because it's it is a lot to take care of, and so uh, some a lot of the stuff's got to go. You know, I'm, I've I've sold off most of my guitars. Um, God, you know, I during all this time I was buying and selling vintage guitars, along with doing this. I've been doing that since the '90s, and uh, that's how I kind of got started and everything and uh so i've had people that have shown interest into 
wanting some of this stuff and you know maybe somebody that uh, has got enough interest in it will say hey this is something i'd really like to have and i'm not i'm just not going to be able to keep it not where i'm you know what we're going to be doing with our lifestyle we want to travel yeah. and i don't think i want to put all this stuff in another storeroom for 25 years you know, a guitar would probably get pissed if it gets locked up again. <laughs> <laughs> you won't be very happy when it gets released, that's for sure. <laughs> now, what and, you know, there's probably significant uh, historical value in some of this stuff. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of people who go, you fin all you did was uh, finish up a guitar that with a neck. Well, we used all the original drawings. We used all the the patterns and stuff that John Page had been working on, you know, uh, the original body got burned up in a fire at the Fender Custom Shop yeah. one night. So, well, I'm sure there'll be some interested parties listening to the podcast who might reach out and try and twist your arm. But I can think of a couple of people who I would think would be the right people to 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 put you in touch with if you ever wanted to to part with it um well and i don't mean myself <laughs> well being in nashville uh you know there's there's quite a few guitar buffs and uh it, it's funny when you run into some of them and i've been really out of the business five or six years now and i'll run in like if I go, John Scott owns a shop here in Spring Hill now, and he's really successful. And he has a lot of, you know, top players that are using his stuff. And I'll come into his shop. Uh, I just took that guild up there to have him uh, tweak the neck for me. And I dropped the guitar off. And, uh, you know, there's all these music people in the area. And then when they introduce me, John will say, well, you know, he's the red special guy. Oh, yeah, I heard about you. You know, but any other time, nobody knows who the hell I am. Yeah. <laughs> he's just some guy who works at GM. I got to, I do have to say that my wife has been absolutely phenomenal about all this. I mean, you know how guys will get obsessed about something and you spend your time talking about it and going doing things and i remember the first time we did the nam show we were all excited and so we were in there on uh we loaded it on a, i think a thursday and friday was the first day of the show and she shows up you know she's got an all access pass and everything and she shows up and uh tim was there and leo and Leo showed up with his family. He came down to, to see the show. And Tim was there to help, help me run the show. And uh, my wife shows up and she hangs around, you know, for a few hours. And then she's like, how in the hell can you do this all day long? I said, what are you talking about? You sell the same story over and over. Everybody asks you the same question. Everybody wants to see this. And this is what we're here for. You know, this is the magic for us. Yeah. yeah. So she never understood it, but she tolerated it very nicely. <laughs>
makes a big difference if you've got yeah she always she was always there you know uh through thick and thin through the whole thing i'm i'm very 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 lucky i'd like to mention some of the people that yeah you know go for it we talked about woody and and ron smith and leo and so on uh, um deanna passarella she was a huge part of our of our company for nine years and uh, she ended up going out to California and building herself a life that she enjoys. And uh, we love her just like she's part of our family. You know, I'm probably not guilty or probably guilty of not staying in touch because I'm just not good at that. But we hear from each other now and then and I watch her life grow, you know, and I'm proud of things that she's done. Uh, Stephen Fazio. I saw him, you know, from a little college kid that didn't have the answers for anything, turn into a great husband and a father. And he's a great engineer now. And he he did some of the most fantastic work for me that I could have ever prayed for. And, um, Sean was Sean Payton was he was a godsend. He came out of nowhere, you know, and uh, God. You know, we just so many more that were there to unload trucks and work shows and everybody that had any part of this, um, you know, God bless them. And I'm, I hope everybody enjoyed the ride because it sure was fun. <laughs> no, it definitely comes across. You can see, you take, you know, the smile on your face talking about those people, you can see that it really meant a big part to you and I hope that one or two of them will stumble across this one day and, and get to hear you talk so lovingly about your time with them because I think it to, to do that later well, on they'd, they'd be made up. I hope I didn't ramble too much but uh, <clears throat> you know there's there's so much to be said and there's so little time. Yep. So well maybe we'll get you um get you back on and we'll, we'll be a bit more geeky and a bit more into some of the details at some point or we could maybe um have a think about how we might be able to work together to to keep some of the information you've got for prosperity for the people of the community or or do something so that we it, it doesn't get lost for forever because i think the stories that you've got need to be captured and told and put down somewhere so that future generations can find them and the history of the red special and the twists and turns that it's been through and the, the various projects that nearly started then didn't and then whatnot that all needs to be recorded because at some point those stories will die and that, that part of the history dies and that's so important that we try and capture that yeah i agree i i'm looking at this book right now um the the pages you know they came out of a regular notebook yeah and they're all yellowed now and some of the writing is getting hard to see. And, you know, it's deteriorating with age. I've kept this stuff locked up in a safe. And uh, they was in a sealed bag for years and years. And it's still, this stuff's going to just wither away unless somebody keeps going with it. You know, yeah. it's, it's just like Brian's guitar, you know, when uh, it's all over. That guitar needs to be someplace that people can see it. Definitely. 
Definitely. And I'm, I'm that, sure that, that that's a consideration with Brian and his family. You know, there's no amount of money that anybody could pay to really own that. No. And I, I, I just feel uh, real, I don't know that it's a responsibility, but I feel like those of us that have been around the forum a long time and have had so much of a wonderful time and experience through tracking the history of the Red Special and being part of meeting people like yourself and talking to you. I remember talking to you 15, 20 years ago and being in touch when you were doing some of some work on the guitars and building the guitars and then um, all the different people I've managed to meet and how it shaped my life and how it's helped me become who I am. I just feel like it's such an important thing for me that we need to keep hold of all this information and all these stories and these wonderful people like yourself who've who've crafted this community or been part of the foundations of the community that for future generations to understand where we've come from and why we are where we are and and you know the the queen fan that's not been born yet who listens to bohemian rhapsody in 20 years time goes oh wow that's the best song I've ever who was that and there goes that's Brian May from Queen. They were the best band in the world and he built his guitar with his dad and then fall down the rabbit hole, we've all fallen down. And I just think it's such an important thing to, to put that information together for those future generations. And, and for some of us, you know, have heard stories and have heard the rumours and actually pinned down and go, no, that's the story of the John Page guitar that's the story of the John Birch guitar and that's the actual facts of what happened. I think that's, that's a really important thing for us to try and achieve. Well, remember <clears throat> I said earlier uh, about that, you'd see people that would open the case and see the guitar for the first time. Uh, there was a little boy, eight years old, that walked into my booth in Dallas, with his mom and his dad. And this kid, if he was four foot two, I'm, I mean, he was a little tiny guy. And he shows up in my booth and he says, I wanna play one of your guitars, you know? And I'm looking at him and if you've gone to a guitar show, teenagers and young kids, you know, they. They learn the Nirvana song and Enter Sandman and they bash out some chords and you're like, yeah, yeah, you got no money. I don't know why I'm wasting my time. This little fella, his name was Griffin Tucker, little blonde headed kid. He sat down in that folding chair and he was so little, his feet would not touch the ground. And I put this guitar, you know, put it over his shoulder and this, you know, he's, he's up here like this. And I thought he's going to play, you know, smoke on the water or something. This kid just wails. He starts playing queen note for note. And I looked at his dad and I go, where the hell did he learn that? And he goes, YouTube. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? He goes, I got him a guitar for his birthday or for Christmas. Showed him like three or four chords. And this kid lives and I watched this little guy grow over the years. I would have him as, you know, uh, he was an artist for us for a while. Yeah. And he came to the NAMM show and entertained for us. And then every time we would do Dallas, we'd have him and his family come down. And, you know, he would play for us. And he 
he won uh, best guitarist under 20 years old in 2015. And uh, today, it was just about a week ago, he was just uh, spotlighted as number nine of the top 15, I think it is, 10 or 15 influential young guitar players in rock and roll. You know, and I got to watch him grow from a little eight-year-old kid. I think he's 19 or 20 years old now. And uh, we built him a gold red special for Christmas one year. And uh, he was he was all about that. I got to have this guitar. I got to have this. And he traveled to California and played it at the NAMM show for us. And you know, guaranteed, if I needed 100 people in my booth, I'd just put Griffin Tucker in there. Yeah. <laughs> people everywhere. And watch him grow and do so much with music. And it's because he was a fan. That was the only reason. Yeah. No, it's so special, isn't it? And that, you know, it's... What a wonderful thing, again, by doing what you did and being where you were and having experienced what you did and being in the right place at the right time and meeting him and then being able to watch it. It's just a fantastic story, again, that's spurred off of a father and son building a guitar out of necessity. You know, yeah. It's, it's amazing, really, when you think about that one act of, Dad, I want a guitar. Sorry, son, we can't afford it. Let's build one. And it's gone across yeah. the world. <laughs> inspired inspired generations and that it's just fantastic and it still happens every day somebody will, will hear that that guitar tone on a record or on the radio or some some young person and it'll strike that chord in their brain and they'll be the next one that's obsessed yep <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we need to put the information together and that's why uh, the podcast is really important to capture people who've been part of that community and have helped shape it get hear their story and, and see them and put a face to a name and hear them speak from their own mouth rather than something written down or um something that someone else has said someone said because i think that that happens sometimes and it's unfair because people hear yeah. things and it's good to hear hear from the originator's mouth yourself well i've been lucky and i've been really glad that i got to be a part of something that that matters to people you know and my position in life you know i've worked for different companies and you know they don't care about you they just I always tell everybody I'm a musical or not a musical, but an industrial prostitute. I just sell myself to GM every day, you know? And, uh, when I, when I finally walk out of there, it's like, it's not going to be a bump in the road. They're not yeah. going to notice me gone. And, uh, maybe someday when I'm done, you know, later on in life, somebody will say, Oh, I found this guitar online and it was made by a guy named Everett Wood, you know, him and his, his friends and Spring Hill, Tennessee built this. So not the biggest legacy in the world, but it's a little bit of something. Yeah. I definitely think on reflection, 
hopefully through us talking today as well, you'll realize, although you think it's just a little part, you've been a bigger part in the in the last 20 years of this red special phenomenon that's uh, been created in the, the online community. And, you know, you've been getting, you know, getting the birch guitar back to Brian, the original birch guitar back. That's a massive thing and a massive feat to have done the detective oh, work. Let me, let me tell you, there were so many people that came crawling out of the woodwork, you know, and, and it's like, just tell me where it is and I want it, no matter what the cost. I'm not, I'm not gonna give that information to anybody, yeah. you know. There's only one person that deserved to have that back, and that was Brian. You know, no, it's well, that's part of the history, and that's you know, we all remember the story and the gig, and we all now know where it ended up and why it disappeared and how it got back to him. And that's, that's a fantastic thing to go full circle on the story and know that it ended up back in the right hands. And if that wasn't you, Everett, it might not have happened. So, you know, you that. That one little story alone puts you in the big part of, of the Red Special's history and Brian May's history, and that you should, you should be. And it all mind, started mindful. with a dollar magazine. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad that we got to talk, and uh, it's a real honor to be part of this and talk with you again. Um, maybe we'll do it again some sometime soon. Definitely. I'd love to um, speak more about some other ideas I've got, but we'll, we'll do that in a minute. Everett, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fantastic catching up with you again after all these years and then to see you so well and to listen to your stories and hear about the history of, of you in the Red Special. Thank you for um, your part and um, hopefully everyone listening will enjoy it as much as I have enjoyed listening to you and talking to you today. Well, thanks for having me on, and I appreciate everything. You have a good day. You too. Cheerio. All right, bye. Now, what a fantastic episode that was with Everett. Everett, thank you so much for agreeing to come on. I know it took a few few months for us to finally get together and to get you on, but I had found such an interesting time chatting to you and reminiscing about the, the good old days of the Red Special Guitar community back before the Facebook page ever existed. And um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing all those details with us. There's some great photos you sent me, which are posted up alongside the video. And it, it was great chatting to you and being back in touch with you after all this time. So thank you so much for your efforts of coming on the podcast. I know it's a lot of time chatting to me for two hours, but um, well worth it for documenting your story. So thank you again. Um, just a quick reminder that coming out soon, we will have these wonderful podcast coins, which I like that. We also have the limited number of It's Slate Slates, which will be coming out soon. We've mentioned about the US meetup in April, the US meetup in September, October time, and then the UK Red Special Guitar meetup. Don't forget that you can head over to the Etsy page and pick up a UK Good Company t-shirt. You can also check out the slates will be going on the Etsy store, as will the coins. So make sure you head over to that. There'll be a link in the description below to the Etsy store. But make sure you head over, like the store. You'll see when new things come available some other bits and pieces coming out as well um which is great show your support for the podcast also i want to shout out to the podcast patrons you guys absolutely rock there is far too many of you to name you all but you all know who you are and you keep this thing alive um thank you for your support your time your effort and your trust in me to keep doing this and um yeah i, I can't wait to see where 2023 takes us 
um, what's going to happen at the meetup this year in the UK. And um, yeah, I just can't wait to see where we go. So keep safe, everyone, and I'll catch you in the next one.